True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to our Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss true crime stories in the media at the moment as well as updates to cases we've covered in the past. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreons. I'm really amazed that even in these trying times, I'm still about to report three new Patreons for the week. Thank you so much to Yolandi Bester, Mel, and Alison. I'm so grateful for your pledges and really, really appreciate your support as well as the support of all of our existing Patreon supporters. I want to reiterate what I said last week as well though. Although I'm extremely grateful for those who are able to continue their support during this time, if you need to pause, reduce or stop completely, I fully understand. We're living in extremely uncertain times and we all just need to do what we need to do right now. Which brings me to my next topic of conversation. Today marks our first day of lockdown in South Africa in our bid to fight off the COVID-19 pandemic. It's scary, I know. We don't know if we're going to be released from lockdown on the 16th of April or, as has happened with many other countries, whether it will be extended. In order for us to be released from lockdown, we'd have to have seen either a stabilization or a reduction in the infection rate. This is going to be a very trying time from a mental health perspective. So please keep in mind that there is a 24-hour trauma counseling line that I put in our show notes every week, and I've confirmed that it will be available during lockdown. Another free resource you can use if you're struggling mentally and emotionally during lockdown is Lifeline, which you can contact on 0861-322-322. For those of us with happy or manageable home lives, this period is going to be trying but possible to get through. There are men, women and children though who are terrified today and it has very little to do with COVID-19. Partners experiencing domestic violence and children living in abusive situations are being isolated with their abusers. If you are in such a situation, contact the Domestic Violence Hotline on 0800-150-150. Police are not locking down and it is possible for you to be moved out of that situation during lockdown if your life is in danger. Abusers will use this lockdown to threaten you. They'll tell you that they're going to throw you out on the streets and that you'll be arrested for avoiding lockdown. Do not allow them to use this already horrific situation for their own abusive and controlling gain. Please ask for help. Although lockdown doesn't personally buy me much extra time, as I already work from home as a freelance writer for a few different companies, 
I'll definitely be doing my utmost in the next 21 days to bring you a few extra pieces of content to take your mind off the situation and keep you busy. There's a meme going around Facebook that says, Our grandparents were called to war. We're just being asked to sit on the couch. Well, my version of that is, you're just being asked to listen to true crime podcasts for 21 days. Let's just take this one day at a time. We've got this. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Last week, I released episode 23 about the murder of Tanya Flowerday. And in that episode, I had a few things that I still wanted to resolve. I mentioned that if I was able to chat to the friend of Tanya's who I'd messaged, then I'd give you an update. And today, I'm able to give you more information. If you haven't listened to episode 23 yet, I recommend you do so before listening to this update. Tammy Hardenberg-Bourgeois grew up with Tanya Flowerday. They were friends throughout their childhood, and they were still friends when Tanya was so cruelly ripped away from all who loved her by Ronald Grimsley. You'll remember that I said that while I was researching, I came across a petition that Tammy had put together protesting the possible release of Ronald Grimsley in February this year. I popped Tammy a message, but I hadn't heard back from her by the time I wanted to release the episode. After I released the episode, though, I received a message from her, and on Saturday, she was kind enough to chat to me on the phone. I started off by telling Tammy that I think every single woman in the world deserves to have a friend like her. And honestly, I think that goes for men too. For 17 years, Tammy has had to live without her friend. And while she would have been forgiven for moving on with her life and leaving Tanya's memory in the past, she hasn't done that. When Ronald Grimsley was sentenced, he was explicitly told by the judge that he would never be allowed to apply for parole. A new ruling in sentencing and parole judgments came into effect since he was sentenced, though, which basically gave him a loophole. Because his crime was committed prior to 2005, he was allowed to apply for parole, and his parole hearing was held in February this year. Tammy says that Tanya's parents were horrified at the possibility of having to see Grimsley again, and listen to him talk about their daughter's final moments. Tammy then agreed to represent them and Tanya at the parole hearing. She put together the petition, which ended up having close to 4,000 signatures on it, and she collected letters from Tanya's parents and friends to submit as evidence opposing Grimsley's release. Thankfully, I can confirm that Ronald Grimsley is currently still incarcerated. Tammy told me that the parole board gave a recommendation that Grimsley should not be released on parole. But that's not the final step. 
because his parole would be a matter of a legal loophole. The Minister of Justice and Constitutional Development has to make the final decision. Grimsley's application is now with the Minister, and Tammy was told that it could take anywhere from three weeks to 18 months for a final decision to be made, and Tanya's parents will be advised when the Minister has decided. Tammy will also let me know when that happens. One of the many reasons that the parole board decided to refuse Grimsley parole is that he's failed to undergo the drug rehabilitation course that the court instructed him to take. The parole board told Grimsley that this counts against him quite significantly because he'd based his defence on having been intoxicated on drugs and alcohol on the night of Tanya's murder and before he was arrested. He'd been to rehab five or six times and relapsed every single time. They told him in the parole hearing that they have no guarantee that he won't relapse again if they let him out. Another thing that stood against him was that every time a member of the parole board asked him what he had learned from the several rehabilitation courses he'd taken and how it had impacted him personally, Crimsley couldn't provide a proper answer. He could tell the board what the course was about, but he had no concept of how he had used what he'd been taught in order to improve himself. That tells me that he sat through these courses to tick a box, but he got nothing out of it. In other words, he's made little to no progress in rehabilitation in 17 years. With regard to Grimsley's drug habit, and I'm not going to mention my source for this to protect their identity, but suffice to say, this person had the opportunity to witness Grimsley's behaviour firsthand behind bars. They've alleged that they have witnessed Grimsley taking drugs while in prison recently. With this information in hand, Tammy has demanded that Grimsley undergo drug testing. You will recall that during the initial court case, experts had testified that it would have been impossible for Grimsley to beat and rape Tanya in the manner that she was, if he'd indeed been under the influence of the amount of heroin he claimed to have taken, because heroin makes you subdued and sleepy. This is one of the reasons that the initial judge found Grimsley to be lying in his testimony about being solely responsible for Tanya's murder. So Grimsley has obviously been thinking about this in the last 17 years and realising that the story doesn't really add up. Tammy told me that in the parole hearing, he had the cheek to change his story once again and say that he actually wasn't on heroin that night, but rather on cocaine. Cocaine has stimulatory effects on the nervous system, rather than the depressive effects that heroin has. So, despite being a known heroin addict for eight years, before he committed this crime, and going through his entire court case, stating that he was on heroin that night, and sitting through reams and reams of expert testimony about his heroin use, 
he only now figured out that he was actually using a totally different drug? Seriously? When I spoke to Tammy, she also mentioned that there were a few things that needed to be clarified about the case. When I ended episode 23, one of the things we still didn't know was whether that video of Tanya's rape and murder was actually real or not. Tammy told me that soon after Tanya's murder, she was interviewed by a television production company. One of the journalists from that company spoke to Tammy's mother and told her that at the house in Fontainebleau, where in Grimsley's original story, he said that he had filmed Tanya's rape and murder, evidence was found that indicated that this could be true. In 2003, the tapes that were used in video cameras were wrapped in cellophane. The journalist told Tammy and her mother that several of those cellophane wrappers were recovered at this house. Police also found rubbish bags at the house, filled with garden rubble, and there was blood on the leaves and twigs inside the bags. Unfortunately, we don't know if that blood was ever found to belong to Tanya. In the parole hearing, Tammy confronted Grimsley about the fact that his story kept changing, and she mentioned the snuff tape. Tammy says that Grimsley didn't deny anything. He simply nodded his head. Tammy feels, and I must agree with her on this, that if the snuff movie was really a lie, surely of all places in his parole hearing, he would deny that it ever existed. But he didn't. Tammy also mentions that during the original court case, the prosecution mentioned that skin cells were found underneath Tanya's fingernails. But frustratingly, it was never confirmed who that DNA belonged to. I asked Tammy whether the police had ever conducted forensic tests on the inside of Grimsley's car, where in his final version, he claimed he had killed Tanya. She says that they did indeed, and they recovered one of Tanya's earrings, some of her hair, and trace amounts of blood. Trace amounts of blood. When you beat someone to death, to the extent that an expert witness says she looked like she'd been the victim of a horrendous car crash, you don't leave behind trace amounts of blood. Tammy also mentioned that one of the investigative journalism programs had done an interview with a woman who said that Grimsley had house sat for her during the time that Tanya was murdered, and evidence was allegedly found in her house as well. So now we have a third possible scene at play. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find any of these programs, but I will keep looking, and if any of our listeners know how I can get hold of such archived programs, please let me know. When I initially messaged Tammy before our conversation, she mentioned that there'd been a few things in the press articles that had been incorrect, and therefore would have been incorrect in my podcast as well. The first point is about the police reservist who initially visited the Flowerday home and searched Tanya's room. 
you'll recall that this man had misrepresented himself as the investigating officer when legally he actually had no right to be there without an actual police officer accompanying him. Tammy pointed out that there were actually two men there that day, the reservist and another presumably unidentified man. Then Tammy told me that the same two men had visited Ronald Grimsley in jail on the day that he changed his story from the snuff film version to the version where he was solely responsible. So that would have been just after the drug dealer was arrested. Honestly, I don't know what to say about that. These men were not official police officers. They were in Tanya's room. They handled her ID book that had mysteriously appeared with bare hands, effectively destroying any evidence on it. They were pushing the claim that she was involved in drugs, which was not true. Then they were allegedly visiting Grimsley just before he changed his story. I'll let you draw your own conclusions from that. During his parole hearing, Ronald Grimsley was asked to tell the parole board exactly what he had done to Tanya that night. Tammy says that he was extremely vague and would only say that he'd picked her up, drove around with her, and then strangled her. He said nothing of rape or anything about the beating she incurred. Tammy says that the parole board would ask him the same question in three or four different ways to test his version, and every time he would give a different answer. Honestly, I think that Ronald Grimsley, 17 years later, is struggling to remember which lies he told to which people. You don't forget the truth. The truth is the same today as it was 17 years ago. There aren't different versions of the truth. So all that tells us is that 17 years later, Grimsley still has no intention of telling anyone what really happened to Tanya that night. An interesting thing that Tammy mentioned is that the social worker at the parole hearing told her that pre-2005, if you were given a life sentence, you served, you served six years in maximum security, six years in minimum security, and then you could apply for parole. But the social worker said that post-2005, the ruling is now that you serve 12 and a half years in maximum security and 12 and a half years in minimum security, and then you are on parole for the rest of your life. But we do know that there are further additions to even that rule, depending on whether you've been granted leave to apply for parole or not. Tanya's parents are getting older, and they are in the process of arranging that Tammy have power of attorney to act as their representative in Tanya's case, should anything happen to them. Again, this is a huge responsibility, and the fact that Tammy is taking it on really impresses me. Tanya was an only child, so she doesn't have any siblings to continue fighting for justice for her when her parents are gone. But Tammy will, and she can be assured 
that if there's anything I can do to bring awareness to this case, I will do it. And I have no doubt that many of our listeners will stand by her as well. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is our Spotlight Minisode for today. As I mentioned in the beginning, I'm going to be doing my best to up my release schedule to help keep you company during this time. So keep an eye on the apps that you use to listen and also on our social media pages for updates. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. True Crime South Africa listeners, please take care of yourselves. Please wash your hands, stay inside, use this time to do things that you love and don't forget to phone or message any friends that you know are alone during this time. To our listeners and champions of True Crime South Africa who are involved in essential services, thank you for helping to carry our country through this time. We literally could not do this without you. As always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.